Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we have a very special guest with us in studio. Dr. Eugenie Scott is the Executive Director of the National Center for Science Education. She also sits on the Board of Advisors for the New York City Skeptics. She's written extensively on the evolution and creationism controversy and is the past president of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists. Uh, Dr. Scott is the 2010 recipient of the National Academy of Sciences Public Welfare Medal, and she's the author of Evolution versus Creationism and the co-editor with Glenn Branch of Not in Our Classrooms, Why Intelligent Design is Wrong for Our Schools. She's here in town to give a lecture for New York City skeptics, so uh, we took the opportunity to bring her into our studio to talk about denialism of climate change and evolution, and also to get a sneak preview into an exciting new initiative that the National Center for Science Education is going to be soon launching, which may be a game changer. Welcome. Thank you. And, and I can add to that list of nice things you said about me that I'm your first returning speaker. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> that's that's that an honor. Thank you for asking the National me Academy of Science medal any day. <laughs> any day. That's right. Well, welcome back. <laughs> so Thanks tell us about me. it. What, what, what's this, this new initiative that the NCSE is starting? About five years ago, four or five years ago, we began noticing that there were these pieces of legislation cropping up around the country Mm -hmm. that bundled together evolution and global warming and a few other, you know, religious right enthusiasms as controversial issues. The Uh teachers were supposed to teach all views of Uh or teach both sides or some similar kind of euphemism. And how has that legislation fared? Well, the good news is that um, most of it has managed to be killed off. Okay. Uh, Not... Um, of its own accord, mind you, it's because good people wrote letters to their representatives or went down and testified to those school board or those um, legislative meetings and and talked to their representatives and told them why this was really bad science. Because you know, unfortunately, um, let's give the students all the answers it really taps into some very strong American values of really fairness does. and free speech, and yep. and so it's very very easy unless you really kind of think it through to, to think that these uh, th- this would be a good idea. So, good people, uh, concerned people, went down and and managed to kill these bills, and, and these are people that we work with, and and without which we would not be successful. We are not successful; they're successful. And so we began kind of paying more attention to climate change. Um, and actually, the, the thing that got this initiative going was about, I guess it's about a year and a half ago now, um, our good friend Joe Levine, who is the uh, co-author with Ken Miller of a, a very well-selling high school biology textbook, Miller and Levine, uh, called me up and said, uh, he's been giving uh, talks uh, and, and meeting with teachers around the country, as he usually does, telling them how to use the book and so forth, and workshops in various districts where they've adopted the book. And uh, he always ends up his um, his uh, discussions with them saying, well, you know, what do you have problems with? Well, they always have problems with evolution, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. But he says, I'm hearing more and more now that teachers are getting hammered for 
global warming, mm-hmm. that uh, they'll start talking about the ecology section of the book or of an environmental science uh, class or something. And um, somebody's parent will show up on the door or uh, some kid will raise his head and, hand and say, oh, I heard that global warming is a big hoax. And so what do we do about global warming? So uh, Joe said, we need a climate NCSE. Mm. We need to have an organization that will help teachers deal with these kinds of political pressures uh, associated with teaching climate change and global warming, just like you guys help teachers with problems and political pressures about teaching evolution. Mm -hmm. He said, either you guys have to take this on or we need to reinvent you somewhere. So, you know, being a studious lot, we thought, well, let's, let's think about this because this is a big step. <laughs> and the first thing we did is we met with, um, we started talking with other associations saying, you know, have you heard anything about this? The science associations, the science education organizations. Um, have you heard about, well, yes, you know, education people, yeah, we've heard about this. Are you doing anything to help these teachers? Is there a climate NCSE equivalent? No, nobody's doing this. You ought to do this. <laughs> and so uh, the science association said, yeah, this is really necessary. You guys should take it on. The Education Association said, yeah, this is really important. You guys should take it on. So you guys got volunteered. We kind of got volunteered. Well, we, we had one more one more possibility. No sense in reinventing the wheel, right? Right. If somebody else is already doing this, sure. you know, we don't have to take it on. Uh, my colleague, Josh Rosenau, went uh, to the environmental organizations, and mm. he talked to um, National Defense Fund and Sierra Club and a whole bunch of the other big outfits and said, have you heard anything about this? They hadn't exactly, but they had a feeling that it probably was or would be a problem, and no, they don't have any skills, no, they don't do with that. I mean, in one sense, they would be better candidates for doing something like this mm-hmm. than the science associations do because they're already more politically oriented. Right. And, and we're talking politics here. You know, This is really what, what you ha- how you have to look at this. Well, so we decided, okay, no sense in... Inventing a climate NCSE will just add this to our portfolio. Right. So that's interesting the, the way you just put it. First of all, my, my first thought when you were um, beginning to tell the story is, well, the NCSE is the National Center for Science Education, not for Education about Evolution, although that you is know what... what the, you know what the Discovery Institute calls us in their, in their own snide fashion? Oh, please, the National know. Center for Selling Evolution. Ah, there but you we, are, you know, well, we are the National the Center is all right. for Science Education. And <laughs> right. you know, we've, uh, the, the, when the organization was founded back in the early 80s, it was given that name by the board of directors because they felt that you know, scientists and teachers working together was a really small, really strong coalition, and mm-hmm. we could do a lot to improve science education once we take care of this creationist issue, right? So, right. And oh, 25 helpful. years later, here we are. Right. <laughs> of course, I mean, if, if, any, if, if in any way one would uh, consider modifying the, the, the name would be the National Center for Socially Controversial Science Education. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting also, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, well, what about environmental organizations? Actually, my thought would have been um, that, no, those are not the most appropriate places mm-hmm. because places like the Sierra Club, for instance, they tend to be def- very much on the political activism mm-hmm. part, mm-hmm. certainly, but they don't do a lot of science. They don't really deal with, with, with the science. They not take the right. science for granted. That's right. And, and go in political act- uh, activism. On the other hand, uh, as I'm sure we'll, we'll explore further in the rest of these, these episodes, there are quite a lot of similarities between climate change denial and evolution denial and a couple of other kinds of denials that I can mm-hmm. think of. So mm-hmm. in reality, you're not, you're, you're not likely to have to reinvent yourself. You, you can just use most of the same tools, pretty much, uh, in, in this, just applying them to, the, to this different controversy, right? Exactly. And we, we thought about this for 
months, and we wrote up, staff wrote up a memo for the board to consider and discussed it with the board, because this is, you know, this is going to require new funding, and oh, yeah, uh, not, not. Not, not to put too fine a point on it, we're going to lose some members. Really? And, oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have, to, we, we have to kind of consider the big picture here before we spread ourselves too thin. But especially, we're going to have to add staff. Because we have lots of expertise about the science of evolution and about science education. But we don't have anybody. Well, we have a geologist who, you know, is in a related field. But Steve doesn't claim to be an expert in climate science. That's not his kind of geology. Um, And so we definitely will have to bring in a a climate scientist to uh, hopefully more than one, depending on funding. Do you have a sense of out of the set of people who are supportive of the National Center for Science Education's mission, uh, what percentage of them would actually take umbrage at the idea of you guys actually actively promoting climate change science? We don't, um, although uh, we're we're starting to kind of feel out the situation. Mm I've given a couple of talks on uh, comparing the two kinds of uh, contrarianism, if you will, mm-hmm. of evolution and climate science, and um, we've been able to get some videotapes, uh, and they're posted on NCSE's YouTube site. Mm-hmm. And so when our communications director, Robert Lunn, uh, looks over those comments, uh, he's noticing about, you know, about 10% are, you know, oh, well... Why didn't you just stick to evolution? Now, everybody knows climate science. Is, now, we don't know how many of those people are actually members because right. that's right. YouTube. And they also tend to be a lot more vocal if they're... Oh, yeah. It's, well, it's the a, internet. There <laughs> right. is a cautionary tale, however, uh, that, that you just reminded me of that uh, took place a few months ago when... Uh, you know, I, I write a regular column for Skeptical Inquirer, mm-hmm. and uh, just happened that at some point I published a column on uh, climate change, mm-hmm. Uh, entirely without knowing that Ken Fraser, the editor of Skeptical Inquirer, was actually preparing a, a, a whole issue on climate change. So he said, you know, why, why don't we publish the, the, the column in the same issue? And I said, that's great. That generated a huge controversy among the Skeptical Inquirer readers, several of whom wrote nasty letters, several of whom quit the, the subscription to the journal. I mean, you know, I, I don't have a sense. I was involved with this because Ken... Um, copied for a number of weeks, actually, uh, the, the, the major uh, correspondence that he was getting to all of the contributors to the special issue. So I had a feeling for what the arguments were, for what, uh, what, how people were reacting. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't tell you the percentages, and certainly, as, as you say, even the percentages done, uh, you know, the counting the numbers of people that react doesn't really tell you much because it doesn't, it's not a statistical uh, representative side, uh, sample of the entire readership of Skeptical Inquirer. Nonetheless, I was stunned by the vehemence of, of the reaction, by how strong it is. You know, these, these are supposed to be skeptics. These are people who... Ah, but. Know, but. <laughs> but. <laughs> yes. Let's get into that. Don't... <laughs> the, um, there, are, there are anti-evolutionists and there are anti-global warmingists, if you will. Um, I guess we're all against global warming, but you, you know. Yes, right. <laughs> but people who are... You, you don't know what I'm talking about. Yep. I don't need to clarify that. Um, there's a... There, there's almost a complete um, separation in the ideological motivation for these two antis, if you will. Right, right. For the evolutionists, uh, the anti-evolutionists are almost entirely motivated by religious ideology. Mm-hmm. It's some some way that uh, many many ways that uh, evolution conflicts with their uh, their faith. The anti-global warming people are primarily motivated by politics and economics, different ideologies. Yeah. There is a sliver of, of um, 
uh, anti-global warmingism uh, that's motivated by um, religion, but it's a, uh, in, in specifically it's the idea of God's providence will uh-huh. protect us against uh, anything bad happening. So global warming, we don't need to worry about it. This is silly. Right. You know, it seems like would, a pretty universal objection you could use to yes, protest everything. anything. Yeah, Besides, we don't need to worry would, about it. That would be not an objection to the notion of change. It would just be an objection to the notion of doing something about it. Or that it's that it's going to be that important. I right. mean, I've got some... Um, I, I've looked on the IC, the Institute for Creation Research and Answers in Genesis web pages, and they do have their position on global warming, and they don't think it's, you know... They, they 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 don't they don't for the most part they're they don't take it seriously it was much hotter before the flood <laughs> whatever but um you know, the, uh, you know the uh you know the we can go on about that for for uh, creation science is so much fun um but, but there, there's this there's this slight um there's this slight um, religious foundation for some of the anti-global warming, but the vast majority yeah. of it is free market economics and anti-big government politics. Yes. And there's an awful lot of people in the skeptics movement who are libertarians, <laughs> mm-hmm. who right. embrace uh, both of those views. And that, I think, and of course with NCSE, we have a certain overlap in our membership with skeptics. Obviously, many NCSE members are not formally members of the skeptic organizations, but there's an overlap. But, and but, I think that's where the objection's going to come. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. But two comments. So the first one is what, what you're saying, this distinction you're drawing in terms of what, what ideological problem there is in the two camps. Again, is reflected in my experience with skeptical inquiry. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, no reader, as far as I can tell, a skeptical inquiry is a fundamentalist religious person who you know uh, who buys the ma- magazine for other than just I don't know, use it for toilet paper, possibly. Possibly. So the the readership there, it's clearly skeptics. It's clearly people that are involved in science and so on and so forth. And sure enough, all the objections about climate change, the climate change issue, were certainly n- none of them were none of, of them were religious. Nature. I none, imagine it was none of religious. Nature. Yeah. Um, now. <laughs> About the skeptics, the connection between skeptics and uh, uh, and libertarian or certain kinds of similar uh, position. That's very interesting. But you know, again, two comments there actually, which makes my total up to, up to three. Up to three. <laughs> we're, we're not counting. <laughs> we're not counting. We're not counting. Um, so the first thing is, it doesn't seem to me rational, reasonable uh, to conflate the science. Uh, either in support or against certain notions, in this particular case, climate change, with the particular type of solution that one might want to implement. I mean, I could easily see a libertarian, in fact, I know some libertarians, uh, you know, including some of my friends, who would say, no, no, I accept the notion of, of climate change. Now let's discuss about what to do and what not to do about it. Right. Mm, so that's, first, first of all, the two are logically distinguished, uh, the distinct kind of, of, of issues. Maybe yes. just to clarify mm-hmm. um, for your listeners, because there's sort of a hierarchy of climate change, uh, contrarianism or denial. <laughs> there's, there's the number one group says, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Number two group says, well, it's happening, but we're not responsible. It's not anthropogenic. Mm-hmm. The third group is, yes, it's happening. Yes, we, we're causing it, but we can't do anything about it, or we shouldn't do anything about it. Uh, and the third group is where all the policy differentials come, and that's where I think some of your libertarian friends might have different solutions to the problem. But and there, you know, there is that first one and two categories. Right, right. Um, I have a couple questions. First, the I've I've definitely encountered some arguments to the effect of yes, it, the science suggests that this is happening, and yes, it suggests that we're responsible, but we don't have any sense that the the magnitude of the effect is going to be large enough to really be causing a problem. That like the, you know. 
to the extent that we can be confident in the climate change models, we can only really be confident about a, a very small effect. Um, so that my first question is whether you've encountered a lot of that and where they fit into your taxonomy. And then the second question is, have you noticed any change in the proportions of those groups over time? Um, we are just getting into climate change. Okay. And I am hardly an expert. I've been sort of kind of watching it out of the peripheral vision, but I haven't sure. until the last month or so, quite honestly. I haven't really started reading um, um, systematically in it. So I, I can't give you any long-term okay. trends. But I would say that your first group, um, you know, that, that the climate models are, are really not strong enough to, uh, to allow us to make any predictions as to how serious it would be, I'd say I'd kind of fold that into the first group. I see. You know, the, see. The, this is this is sort of a subset, if you will, uh, a subspecies so of the. It's not happening. As far as they're concerned, the confidence <laughs> intervals include zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it is it, it is interesting to, the variation, and I, I'd suggest that if if you or any of our listeners who are um, uh, engaging in a conversation with somebody who seemed well, I don't know about this climate change stuff. Mm-hmm. Try to determine what category they're in first, right, right. because Good you can point. do a lot of talking past one another. Totally. I've noticed that yes. that happening on blogs and things. That uh, not that that is rare on blogs. <laughs> but so, yeah, f- find out what exactly their position. If you're talking is. past each other. At least you're talking instead of yelling obscenities. So that's already one step up from where you could be on the <laughs> no, internet. No, we were talking about blogs. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's so I want to. I want to go back. I'm sorry. I'm not going to let the, the, the skeptic community off the hook that easily. No, no. So let's get back <laughs> to that for a second. Um, so. Uh, two years ago at, uh, at TAM, what it was last year? TAM 8. Mm-hmm. 8, yes. You went to 9 this year, right? Yes. Okay, did. so it was yeah. 8. At any rate, um, so I gave a, I gave a talk immediately f- uh, following um, uh, Phil Plate. And our talks were not coordinated at all, but it turned out that we sort of took this two sides of the, same, of the same coin. So Phil's talk was about how uh, skeptics really need to talk about to each other and to the community at large using the appropriate tone and and and, and a reasonable uh, approach to things and not just you know start with sarcasm and yelling and all that sort of stuff. My talk was and and then he, he, he mentioned something and then I basically elaborated on. In fact, people asked us afterwards if we were sort of uh, somehow <laughs> communicating and said no no no, it's just independent thinking, convergent evolution. Um, my talk was actually about taking specifically about taking to task skeptics who talk about science that they clearly do not understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to make a broader, a broader point about which I, I like your, your opinion, actually. But the, the You notice that I just did not make a comment on something I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so but let me ask you, I'll ask the question in a second, but to give you the background, basically I was taking on um, uh, you know, people like Michael Shermer, who was in the audience, uh, Penn and Teller, who are big, uh, big they're figures. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're opinionated. They're they have opinions. They're, they're, they're <laughs> opinions, and they're big at Tam, of course. Yeah. Uh, and James Rand himself, who at the time had just come out with uh, the statement about the fact that he was you know, uh, uh, skeptical of, of climate change. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that I, I let off the hook only Schirmer because he actually did change his mind uh, publicly. And, and so he was in the back of the audience and, you know, glowing about that. <laughs> he, he was the only one getting credit for that sort of stuff, right? Um, <laughs> Now, obviously, I have the highest um, opinion in general of all of those people that I just mentioned. But what I was, the point I was trying to make is that the role of the skeptic community, as far as I, can, as I see it, is not to do science or pronouncements on science. It is, a, it, it is two things, and the, those two things are quite distinct. One is to help the public understanding of science, where they are doing, they are a conduit, they are a grassroots 
movement for public understanding of science, so they're not supposed to be doing pronouncements on the science, not because it's prohibited by law, but because they literally don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, unless you are a climate change uh, right. scientist or a climate scientist, you really or if a you're not a physicist, yeah. don't talk don't, about don't talk about it okay. <laughs> as, a, as if you were an expert because right. you're not. Um, the other role of the skeptic community, I thought I pointed out, was on the other hand. Uh, in the area where skeptics really do have expertise. And that is, in fact, the debunking of paranormal and similar mm -hmm. kinds of phenomena. Mm -hmm. Because there, people like Jane Brandy, Penn and Teller, and so on and so forth, and even Shermer, actually have technical know-how that the scientists themselves don't have. And right? they're good at it. That's right, and they're very good at it. So that part, they really are the experts, and they are on the, on the front lines. That's where they should be doing their actual investigations. The rest, they really should be doing the second kind of thing, which is sort of uh, more of a grassroots movement of science education. So does that reflect sort of where NCSE might be going That is exactly our position. Um, we've been defending evolution in classrooms and trying to help the public understand evolution for many, many years now, decades. We're, uh, we're not researching evolution. We don't take a position on whether birds are dinosaurs, although you'd have to arm wrestle Kevin Badian on that, I says. But sure. yeah, as an organization, we don't, okay. We don't take a position on, on uh, inflationary cosmology versus string theory. You know, we, 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 don't take, we go with the scientific consensus. The scientific, if there is one, in, in, the, in the case of string well, theory, for okay, instance, it might we, not we be. Have, so. We have a short you know, list of things. We do evolution. You know, yes. There's a lot of stuff in evolution. There's astronomy, geology, and biology, so yeah. we can have a lot of things to talk about. But we basically go with the scientific consensus. Living things have common ancestors. The universe is old, etc. And we are... Our skill area, so to speak, is working at the grassroots to try to help communities support the teachers uh, uh, in teaching evolution, to try to keep bad policies from being passed at the local level, the state level, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we do a lot of that kind of grassroots organizing. One of my former board uh, members had... <laughs> One said that, you know, we, we run grassroots organizations from the top down, which, <laughs> which isn't really true because, no, you know, the, the, the people on the ground do all the work. We just, I prefer the analogy that we hand out the fire extinguishers and, and they do the work. <laughs> So, but, you know, but we don't take a position on science. We go with a consensus. And that's exactly what we're doing with climate change. Uh, we are going, the consensus of, uh, of science in general, National Academy, et cetera, many organizations, the consensus of particularly the scientists who are involved in climate change research, is enormously strong that it's getting warmer, people have a lot to do with it. Anthropogenic climate change is very important. Now, the next step is that sort of th third category here. Can you do anything about it? What should you do about it? Right. That's a policy issue. Mm -hmm. We have no expertise in policy. We're leaving the policy part out. So policy and technology, I guess. If, yeah. Because part of it hinges on how much people think it's, it's, it's feasible to address mm -hmm. this issue with the new technology. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, you like, right, like um, geo, geoengineering, um, geoengineering yeah. things like Yeah, we don't deal with it. That's right. a policy issue. Um, so uh, teachers should be, and, and of course, our, our interests are narrower than those of the skeptics organizations because we are focused on science education. Right. We are the National Center for Science, science Education. education. <laughs> and that worked out we're, nicely. We're, we're trying to help K-12 teachers. Actually, it turns out to be K-16 teachers because, you know, this is, occurs at especially the uh, community college level. But, oh, you know, we're right. educators. And particularly at K-12, the responsibility of the K-12 teacher is very different from that of a university professor. Their job is to present the consensus. Right. 
They and, and they need support in doing that, and that's what we do. So would your approach here be the same as your approach in, in supporting teachers teaching evolution? Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we uh, with evolution, and we will with climate science, we will provide guidance as to the science, mm-hmm. uh, again, reflecting the consensus view. Um, we will also work with our um, citizens for science groups around the country to make them aware that in addition to monitoring the problems with evolution, we'd like them to uh, work with us to support teachers in, in um, teaching good science and climate science as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, have some information that the new national science education standards that the National Academy um, is helping to to outline it there in the process of being written now by a nonprofit organization. When those are released, we have good reason to believe that uh, climate science will be included, global warming is included there, mm-hmm. which is going to increase the pressure upon teachers right. to, um, to uh, teach good science, just like uh, the movement of the state science education standards over the last 15 years have increased the pressure on teachers for teaching evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are... Um, you know, we, we, we are going to stick to the science. We're going to leave policy out. If you're a, uh, what Naomi Oreskes calls a free market fundamentalist or if you are um, somebody who is um, um, a green and, you know, whatever you want to do, that's not our job description. Right. Now, I want to go back to the word denialism, mm-hmm. which often pops up in these things. It's obviously a derogatory word, um, which, which is, is why fine I with try me. not to use it, actually. <laughs> I actually use it just fine. Now, that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Yeah, you do try not to use it. Because and it's hard because it's, it's become, well, the, the people who, who do not accept the consensus on global warming, which is a much clunkier way of, <laughs> it's much easier to say than the global yes. warming denialists, but, you know, those folks, the people who don't accept the, the consensus view, want to be called skeptics, that name's taken. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't want them calling themselves skeptics because right. that just muddies the water with us, yep. right? Um, uh, they don't like denialists because they think it, it sounds like Holocaust denialism. I don't think mm-hmm. that's necessarily the case, but that's the way they feel. My job, and, and actually this gets back to Phil Plate and your concerns mm-hmm. at TAM. Um, if our job is persuasion... And it is. I mean, yep. last I looked, I live in a democracy. Yep. It is persuasion. <laughs> I am at not least a, part of it, yes. Absolutely. I am not a strong man. I can't make you agree with me. Right. Um, so if we're in the business of persuasion, um, you are very unpersuasive when you start out by insulting somebody. Yes. So I'm, you know, I would like, I would like the people who don't accept climate change to listen to me, and the finger's going to get jammed in the ears if I start out by using a term for them which they find insulting. Well, I think the task of... Sorry to interrupt. I think the task of persuading the people who disagree with you is a different task from the task of persuading policymakers and the public who are sort of undecided. And and there might be a different strategy that actually works best for each. Yeah, but you can't say... If you don't accept climate change, don't listen to this broadcast. I mean, <laughs> right. right. Once you go public with a certain label, it's, it's hard yeah. to shake yeah. it off. But when I've, uh, when I've talked to – I moderated a panel at Nexus a couple of years ago now uh, asking very that, skilled that skeptic communicators. Oh, I'm sorry. The Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. <laughs> a, a fine meeting, I might add. Very fine meeting. <laughs> we can all agree with a totally objective, unbiased <laughs> point of view. Yep. Uh, I – I was talking to a, a bunch of skilled science communicators, um, James Randi and George Robb and, uh, and Steve Mursky, et cetera. And I was asking them about this question of whether to sort of take the, um, take the offensive 
and, you know, use mockery and really just, you know, attack the position that you're arguing against or whether to be more, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, diplomatic. And they said, you know, when you're in, in a debate, you have to decide, like, you often can't possibly convince the person you're in the debate with and your goal instead should be to convince the audience. And so then, you know, using, using mockery and being aggressive, uh, can actually like that. That certainly wouldn't convince someone you were trying to convince directly, but it, it can often convince the audience. So I wonder if there's well, sort who's of a your similar. Audience? Well, right, I that mean, is the, the question. question. Yeah, and in my experience with the evolution issue, and I strongly suspect it's going to be the situation with the global warming issue. You have a a range of people out there, uh-huh. um, some of whom um, are very strongly anti fill in the blank. And right. evolution, and global warming, and others who uh, really don't know very much about it and would like to learn a little bit more because they've—it's kind of in their peripheral vision, or they've heard it on the news or something—but sure. they don't know anything about it. And everybody in between. And uh, I suppose actually the ones further out would be those who already agree with you. Right. Um, now, you can certainly be um, revving up your base. I mean, if you know the the insulting the. Um, uh, mockery, the telling jokes at your opponent's expense, mm-hmm. that revs up the base. Right. It does nothing to persuade anybody else, in my opinion. But there was another reason I brought up the, the nihilism. That's because a few months ago I was talking to Michael Spector uh, of The New Yorker, who, is, who authored a book called The Nihilism. Um, and the subtitle is How Irrational Thinking Arms the Planet and Threatens Our Lives. And so yeah, I think he's actually... F- if not primarily, certainly in a good part responsible for uh, so many more people in the last few months or the last year or so using the term denialism. Now, uh, where I was going with this is that there are several other chapters in his book that don't have anything to do with evolution or climate change and um, that I wonder if those are going to become further expansions of, of, of <laughs> or similar organizations. So uh, the, one, the, the obvious one is the, the, the issue of vaccines and you know, the, safety, the health safety of vaccines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also a chapter on organic fetish, what he calls organic fetish. So a lot of pseudoscience ah. that, deals, that, that, that deals with claims about nutrition, uh, you know, what is good for you and what is not good for you, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, there is another one on echinacea, which it's a, it's a plant. But more more health claims. Yeah, it's, it's all more about health yeah. claims. The claim there is that it is uh, effective for That's for not cold. on our list. That's on the skeptics' lists. Okay. I mean, to me, that, that sort of falls right into that uh, gray area between science and pseudoscience, like, like that your book was all about. Yeah. See, I'm plugging his book now. <laughs> um, Which, uh, incidentally, was called, the previous one, not the one you referred to now, but it was called Denying Evolution. True. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention. Prescient, yeah, there was a reason you guys were such good friends. Um, no, that, that's, that, those, those issues are not issues that teachers have to deal with, and that really is our focus, because we, you know, we right. we're, we're the inch-wide, mile-deep folks. We don't, the skeptics have a much wider range of things that they deal no, with. No, but that makes sense as, as a criterion, yeah. that because you're, again, the National Center for Science Education, yeah. then, it, then it does deal with what's relevant for teaching. And unless these things become relevant for teaching, which may. <laughs> I mean, the, the teachers can certainly ask us about it. We can direct them to sites where they could find more information. Right. But, you know, Massimo, there was one thing that you were kind of getting at. Actually, this was several minutes ago when you were talking about the, uh, the skeptics and how surprised you were when um, Skeptical Inquirer was getting all this blowback on the... Um, um, global warming issue and I, I don't wish to put words in your mouth certainly but oh, don't worry I'm wondering <laughs> you are perfectly capable of defending yourself I know that but I wonder whether some of your surprise was 
that maybe you expected more of our fellow skeptics than, oh, yeah. <laughs> than oh, yeah. you should. Yeah. Many skeptics are scientists. Many, uh, the, all of them are science fans, minimally. They may not be employed as scientists, but they all love science. They love critical yeah. thinking. That's why, you know, wearing my skeptics hat here, that's why um, we're interested in the paranormal and all these other right. things. And, you know, how do you look at this issue from the standpoint of a scientist? That's fun, whether you're a scientist or just a science fan. Not just, but or a science fan. But, you know... I, I don't want to overstate the research because I think it is preliminary, but the research that I've seen makes sense that when you have a position that's based on an ideology, it's very hard to shake that position with empirical evidence. Yeah. And I've said for years, uh, you don't solve the creation and evolution issue by shoveling more science on top. Mm-hmm. You have to deal with that underlying ideological issue. Yeah. In the case of climate change, the underlying ideological issues are politics and economics. And if somebody is a, um, a, a you know, has, has, is terribly fearful of big government, if somebody is um, uh, terribly concerned about free market and, and not hindering the free market in any way, these are ideologies. And yeah, they are held very strongly. And it takes, it's not that it's impossible to change somebody's mind with empirical evidence. But you need to first get buy-in, so to speak, from that person. That, well, if I'm right, how will this affect your view? You know, in dealing with a conservative Christian, you are wasting your time talking about all the science behind evolution unless that person first admits to his or herself, if evolution happened, I don't necessarily lose big. How do you do that with with people who deny climate change? What does that buy-in how well, do you convince I, I them think, it's okay? If- you know, I, as I say, we're still in our, we're, we're taking baby steps here. Yeah. We're, we're getting a new climate change uh, employee coming in at the first of the month. But we're still, you know, learning a great deal about this. But my, my gut feeling, and I'm willing to change my mind with experience, my gut feeling is that just as with the evolution issue, there are lots of, there's lots of dichotomous thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you're either an evolutionist atheist or you're a Christian creationist, right. and the idea of a Christian evolutionist is something that most people have either not encountered or thought about, but it's a continuum, not a dichotomy. I have the feeling that it's the same thing with climate change. Um, I'm a Republican, therefore I must be against climate change because mm-hmm. all my Republican friends are against climate change. Mm-hmm. Well... If you go on the internet, you'll find Republicans for the environment. Hmm. I mean, there are green Republicans, right? And you need to make Just like there are gay Republicans and there's all sorts of other things that are Republicans. No no political party is is as monolithic as they would like to be. Precisely. But I think uh, there's there's a message that every party wants to put out. And uh, Republicans particularly have been... um, have been very uh, clear uh, that part of that message is that global warming is not happening, we don't need to do anything, and so forth. And yet, when you look historically, the Republican Party has had many very strong environmentalists. Even mm-hmm. the, you know, the, um, the sainted Ronald Reagan uh, had many good things to say about protecting the environment. Well, so we need to make, make those things better known. It's interesting you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, so the... the we just talked about uh, how monolithic or not a particular party can be in terms of ideology. Um, as part of research for a, for a new book that I just finished writing, it's going to come out next year, I actually looked into the social science research and political science research 
on uh, the connection between political positions, political parties, and ideological positions. Mm -hmm. And apparently there is pretty convincing research that over the last, you know, we all have this, this impression that over the last decade or more, uh, politics in the United States has gotten much more polarized. Uh, you know, polarized and so on and so forth. Well, it turns out that that is empirically true in terms of the official positions of the parties and the candidates. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not true at all in terms of the position of the public. The American public has moved toward more centrist positions. We've always been centrist. Yes, but you know, witness, for instance, the fact that now there is a fairly sizable component of the American public that, say, for instance, accepts uh, you know, gay unions. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. It, the, these people have actually looked into several of these issues, and they've noticed that people keep voting for a party or another, largely because we only have two alternatives, and because the party's platform, particularly the, the Republican platform, tend to be fairly monolithic, that gives the impression that people, and it has been, in fact, radicalizing, there are objective measures about the fact that, that the political platforms have been, in fact, uh, moving apart from each other. Uh, but we have also the impression that, therefore, it's the entire country or that this, this polarization is because the country is being polarized. It's not. The country has actually become less polarized, demonstrably so, over the last 20 or 30 years. It's the parties that have gone further out uh, from this position. I would argue, of course, mostly the Republican Party has gone further out. But the thing is, the two are, dec uh, are decoupled. And... To me, that is, that is a slight reason for, for optimism. Because after all, what really matters in the long term, hopefully, is the public opinion about certain things. Because eventually, politicians will follow the public. Politicians rarely, not only in this country, but anywhere, lead the public. They're supposed to be leaders, but they rarely lead. That. So eventually, they'll, they'll listen to the fact that, oh my gosh, the majority of Americans, for instance, was just the other day, approves of uh, both gay marriages and uh, legalization of marijuana. Well... You know, once you get to those numbers, then eventually the, the legislation and the, and the political uh, positions will follow. Uh, so this, this idea of radicalization is actually only, it's, it's a little bit misleading in that, in that sense. So well, those, those data are very interesting. I'll, I'll, be, I'd be, I'll be very interested to see that. Um, yeah, I'll send you. My, my friend John Staver from Kansas many years ago during the Kansas Evolution Wars um, uh, mentioned democracy got us into this and democracy is going to get us out. I'm optimistic, but you, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you get the government you deserve. Yeah. No, that, that's and although Edmund Burke is not my favorite philosopher, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. That's a good <laughs> phrase. <laughs> uh, I wanted to mention also something about, you know, uh, when you were talking about the effectiveness of talking to, um, for instance, during, debate, during public debates mm -hmm. or during um, public presentations. Uh, when well, you're I, not trying to persuade your, your opponent. No, exactly. You're, you're not you're, trying to persuade your opponent. And who is you're, in your audience? Exactly. You have to look at the audience. So I learned that, that lesson very quickly when I started doing debates when, when I was living in Tennessee um, mm -hmm. about what was effective and what was not effective. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's pretty clear to me from, from my, at least my personal experience, and actually there is some research that sort of backs this up. Uh, the thing that was important was not my arguments about science, which is why most of my colleagues... Uh, you know, fail. biology, funny biology, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> fail. fail. Because they come in with this idea that, well, I know the science, I'll explain to you, that's it, end of the story, and you go home, right? And you'll smack yourself on the forehead and say, right! <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, that never happens. No. Right? <laughs> so what instead did happen over and over again uh, was a couple of things. Uh, the most recurrent uh, two things that were predict predictive of positive results were if I cut my opponent line, mm. you know, if I could show you know, slide in hand that he was actually misquoting somebody or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I did that a couple of times and people came after the date from the other side and said, you know, 
we really are disturbed by the fact that our guy was mm-hmm. lying because if he has the we truth. We expect more. Exactly. Right. If he has the truth, why does he have to lie? Um, and the other thing is simply uh, uh, coming across as a nice guy. Be likable. Yeah. You, you have mm-hmm. no idea how many people came up to me after the debate and said, well, I was expecting, yes. you know, this, just this really awful person, you know, eating babies and spitting fire and, you know, yeah. horns in there, on yeah. his head and tail and then all that sort of and stuff. And you're kind and of a nice guy. Yeah, a nice guy. I so, don't know why they thought you'd be eating babies during a debate. Everyone knows that's bad manner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Of course, after the debate, right. dinner, it's a different matter. <laughs> yeah, but those are, in fact, the, the two things really yeah. that make an immediate impact. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to... Uh, suggest that science, solid science education doesn't help. In the long term, I think it does help. It's absolutely necessary. Yeah. But if you want to get the, little, the first wedge, the first thing that makes somebody take think. you seriously, yep. think, doubt what, what they've been thinking for a long time, you don't do it through rational arguments and evidence. You do it through being likable and hopefully catching your opponent into behaviors that are not appropriate. <laughs> so of course, I, I have some pretty strong feelings about debate anyway. Yes. I mean, you know, when you think about it, when was the last time any scientific issue was decided by debate, right? I mean, why are, you know, debate policy, debate um, matters of opinion, but it's ridiculous to debate whether the Earth is ancient or young. I mean, You're absolutely you know. true. That's really right. But, but on the other hand, um, as you said earlier, this is not a debate about science. This mm-hmm. is about a debate of, it's a debate about making certain people better mm-hmm. appreciate, uh, so it's about education, mm-hmm. not, science, not, mm-hmm. not the science. So one of the things, that, the first things that I, quickly started doing uh, during the debate is I started out, for instance, debating Duane Gish for, from the Institute for Creation Research. Good old Dwayne. called. Good um, old yes, Dwayne. Good old Dwayne. Uh, the first thing I would do, which would take some of his wind off, is I want to make clear that this is not a debate about science. This is just a debate about policy. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you're doing exactly what political candidates are doing. You're, and in fact, analogously, mm-hmm. you're winning or losing a debate not on the substance, mm-hmm. but on whether you are likable and you know and you're you know articulate and you're nice and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, exactly. that is the situation. Exactly. It, it is about persuasion, not about exactly uh, at that level. Yeah, it hasn't. It is not only about no, persuasion. If, if, if you if you feel compelled to debate, either <laughs> creationism or uh, global change or whatever. Um, be very careful about the question that you're debating, and right. it should not be things that are empirically determined. Uh, you can you can talk about the nature of science and is does creation science or does intelligent design fit the precepts of science? You know, right. It hasn't. I'd, I'd love to hear. Does has intelligent design illuminated anything about <laughs> biology? I mean that. Of course, you know. <laughs> no. Okay. Right. Yeah, be a short debate. Be a short debate. <laughs> Everyone would but feel cheated really, for that ticket price. Debating whether living things have common ancestors is is a, is a dumb thing to debate. Um, I would agree. I, don't get me started on debates. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up this section of the podcast, but we're going to move on now to the rationally speaking picks. Welcome back. Every episode, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science Education, for her suggestion. 
since we've been talking about NCSE's new climate uh, change initiative, I want to mention a website that I encountered that I think is really, really interesting. Uh, you know, for refuting creation science or intelligent design, we've got talkorigins.org. A comparable site I would like to recommend is skepticalscience.com. It lists the top 160 or plus or minus um, anti-global warming arguments and very clear refutations at two levels, sort of the basics and the intermediate level. So check it out. Oh, excellent. Hopefully someone, some enterprising developer will make a, an iPhone or Android app for that. There is, one. there is there one. There is one. That's Fantastic. Right. I have it. Yep. <laughs> so it's been a pleasure to have you here, Gene, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys do with this new initiative. And uh, I I look forward to checking back in with you guys in a few months to a year and uh, to see how much you've learned and and whether your armor is still intact or in, in tatters from the uh, the fight that I'm sure is going to ensue. But I, I know you guys will handle it beautifully. Well. Maybe in the future sometime you can have our climate scientist on. I'll introduce you to him when he takes office next uh, oh, that'll next be month. excellent. Okay. Thank and you so, for inviting me. Yeah. Such a pleasure. And I'll also add in closing that our listeners can go to ncse.com, the official website for the National Center for Science Education, to learn more about the upcoming climate science initiative as well as all the other wonderful work that NCSE does. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>